Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I am joined, as always, by Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Kate, just as a reminder to listeners, you have the highest tolerance for horror out of anybody in the world, right? Yes, I am not at all a giant scaredy cat who is incredibly disturbed by this episode the first time and the second time and now at least the third time yeah we'll get there we'll get there but uh it's just, i will be yeah. uh enjoying a pinot noir even though i should be having uh, another bourbon because it looked like jack was having some whiskey in there but uh, what will you be drinking uh this week i am breaking in my my glass that i got from hess uh in san diego which was still absolutely hess brewing which was a love is a lovely uh microbrew there um, and I'm using it to drink a Kolsch, which is a kind of beer I've never had before, but this is one made by the microbrewer by me. And um, it's yummy so far. So that's, I, I didn't know what the appropriate drink for the dead would be. I didn't do any research. I, I feel like I should have, but I, so I'm just having a beer. Hey, that's fine with me. <laughs> uh, just as a reminder to listeners, we'll be treating this season of This Is Our Design as mostly spoiler-free. There will be a section at the end of the podcast that will contain spoilers for future episodes of Hannibal. So if you are watching for the first time, that will be noted in the post, and we will mention it on the podcast so that you may fast-forward past that. Libby, are you partaking? Uh, yeah, it's the middle of the afternoon in California, <laughs> so I'm drinking water. That uh, No day drinking, okay. Being all responsible. <laughs> well, when, when I'm living alone for the first time in my life, I gotta be a little responsible. Fair stay enough. hydrated, Kate. Fair enough. Well, you know, I, I got my water here, too. We'll make it work. <laughs> Sean, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no that's all right. It's, we, we have to ask the guests as well what they are drinking, if they are drinking. Uh, and just to let listeners know, this week we'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 10, Buffet Foie, written by Andy Black, Chris Brancato, and Brian Fuller, and directed by John Dahl. And our special guest this week, returning to the podcast, whose voice you will have just heard, uh, from TV on the Internet, and whose work appears at the AV Club and NPR. It is Libby Hill. Libby, welcome back to the podcast. Yay, thanks. I'm so excited to be here, guys. All right, let's get into it, and we'll go straight to the horror of this. So this is, to my mind, probably the single most horrific episode of Hannibal, and I had the misfortune of uh, getting this off of iTunes while I was abroad and watching it for the very first time in the dark at about 2 a.m. with headphones. <laughs> And I quite literally could not sleep that night without the lights on. So before we get into the ways in which this episode is terrifying on an emotional and psychological level, uh, Libby, can you talk about your response to this in the more traditional horror way? Actually, I'm I'm very impressed by this, Sean, because I think I have the only story that could like one up the first time you saw this. The first time I saw this, we were uh, my husband and I were doing a. Hannibal Ketchup last summer driving across to be fair I was driving and he was watching Hannibal and I was listening to Hannibal because I unlike Kate have problems with gore and horror <laughs> um so I would you know my eyes would flip back and forth but so we were driving across the abandoned wasteland that is West Texas in the dark and um this episode came up and um, at one point, I thought I would have to pull the car over to the side of the road and, like, freak out by how scared I was. But then I realized that would entail 
pulling over to the side of the road in the middle of nowhere in West Texas in the dark. So I did not do that. I kept driving. But yeah, this episode scared the bejesus out of me. And then today I watched it to refresh in daylight in my bedroom, which again, mistake. Um, And it still scared the bejesus out of me now that I could actually intake all of those horrifying images. Like I, I, um, We'll also be sleeping with the lights on tonight. So, progress. <laughs> and you were also smart enough to take a nap after having watched it today. Is that right? Yeah, I am brilliant. I make really <laughs> good decisions. Um, it was not a very restful nap. So you got to have two very, very poor experiences with this, which certainly <laughs> yes. one-ups me. Um, yes. So let's talk about some of the details, Kate. Is it the, the pulling off of the skin? Is it seeing George's face under the beds? Uh, what just stands out to you when you see this episode? It, it's central premise of, uh, or, or the, the, the setting of the kills, of the murder at someone's in their, you know, going to bed and there's a, there's a monster under their bed. I mean, that's, that's visceral horror. That's childhood terror. Oh no, gotta jump from the hallway onto your bed so the monster under your bed doesn't get you kind of stuff. And uh, it's just the, the execution of that throughout is wonderful, but when it's paired with Will's consistent uh, degra- the degradation of his mind and his lack of certainty of anything that's happening, really, it, it's his first... We've seen him get increasingly concerned and uh, acting increasingly uh, troubling, but... But this episode takes it to the next level. This episode, he could be the killer. We don't know what's going on any more than he does at first. And so um, when you add in just brainstem level uh, horror from the, the, the monster under the bed to the wonderful execution of it to uh, these other themes of loss of self and, uh, and, and, and the execution of all of that, it's just it all comes together to make a completely terrifying episode of television for, I mean, I, I, I have a much higher tolerance than I used to. Thanks to, uh, the walking dead and for gore, thanks to Spartacus and, uh, over at the televerse, wonderful friend of the show, Steve Procopi keeping, you know, throwing horror at me. So I, I'm, I'm better able to handle it, but it's still absolutely horrifying. In addition to having to sleep with the lights on the first time, I really did, uh, no exaggeration, have to look under my bed as well from a distance. It's also utterly disturbing, because at first we don't see Georgia. We see our victim being pulled under, and then just a beautiful, beautiful shot of the blood spatter from director John Dahl. Um, but then when Will goes back to the house and sees her face there for the first time, and then, of course, even more so in that scene near the end where he wakes up and she's under there and the dogs are kind of growling at her. Um, so utterly terrifying. Um, so, But you touched on the, the more psychological aspects as well in relation to, to Will, so we could talk about that too. And uh, I have a friend who suffers from mental illness, though unrelated to what's going on here. And he nearly gave up watching Hannibal after this episode because of how awful Hannibal and Dr. Sutcliffe are to Will. Uh, Kate, did this episode take Hannibal's evil to a new level for you? Well, it does in that absolute abuse of power, sure. But if that wasn't enough, 
we get to see him sawing off Dr. Sutcliffe's face in what is, I mean, we, we see him attack uh, Miriam last at the end of episode, what, six, I want to say, Entree, maybe it was episode, yeah, I think it was episode six, but, I mean, and we, then we see him prepare his feast in Sorbet, but he's, you know, he's coldly, calculatedly pulling back his friend's, air quotes, face and sawing at it with a dull pair of scissors in the end of this. This is absolutely horrifying. Any doubts that the show had fun playing with at the start of the season of, you know, just how bad is he? They are removed. Did that image also stand out to you, Libby? And, and does what Hannibal do to Will, you know, regarding the clock face and the encephalitis that he can smell out, does this add layers and layers of horror to this episode? I, um, yeah, and as just as as disturbed as I am by gore, absolutely. The number one thing that bothered me about this episode was um, Hannibal's actions and manipulations of Will. I I I still think that that is the most monstrous thing that I at least have ever seen Hannibal do, um, and I think that to the to this day. I but I like your friend Sean suffer from mental illness. And so there is something so real and so um, visceral about what happens to Will in this episode. Um, This has been a really trying week. There has been a lot of talk in the news about mental illness. And I've been trying and trying and trying to write something meaningful about it. But I just have felt completely disconnected from it. So when Will comes out of the first crime scene and he's like, he's shaken and he's scared and He's like, the fear helps me, you know, it helps me do my job, but it makes words hard. Like, that was so resonant for me. And so then to see a trusted person of authority manipulate that and, and, and keep someone who's so desperately needed of healing in this uncertain, frightening place, um, this was when I, I was watching this show and I was like, yeah, he's, he is a monster, which is maybe shocking for someone who is a, you know, a, a serial killer and a, and a, and a um, cannibal. But like, this was when I was like, maybe he is the devil. And it's not like Will is leaving himself out to dry. He seems to know, he says as much that he knows what kind of crazy that he is and what Hannibal is describing isn't that crazy, and that's what prompts him to look specifically for physiological imbalances, um, which they do end up being, although he doesn't get to know this firsthand because of uh, Hannibal and Sutcliffe withholding that information. So, um, like you were saying, this has been a big conversation recently, uh, and unfortunately, and even more unfortunately, a lot of the talk has to do with um, complicity. And so, at least in this case, I I think Will is trying to do something about this, or as much as he can. Obviously, he realizes that he's very good at his job, and what his job entails is hopefully saving lives, um, or at the very least, catching murderers. Um, But he also seems very aware of the, the boundaries that he has. So it, it makes Hannibal's actions all the more horrible, I think. I think it also highlights just how strong Will is at his core to have this overwhelmingly you know powerful force of Hannibal whispering in his ear and directly telling him, no, there's nothing wrong with you. 
physically, which he has been saying for weeks. We talked about in last week's episode uh, how Will says he needs to get a brain scan and Hannibal immediately tries to dissuade him as subtly as he can. Uh, and, so, and so to have to have this very strong and, like you say, Libby, very trusted voice telling him, no, this is psychological, and to have Will have the strength of character to to come out the other side of that, at least in this episode, and say, there, I know myself, I know who I am, despite going into the minds of these killers, despite all the trauma I've been experiencing, despite still having all of these unresolved issues about Garrett Jacob Hobbs and Abigail Hobbs, I know myself. It's it's remarkable. Well, one voice I think that acts as an opposing force to this is Jack Crawford in this episode, at least. Uh, and Libby, Jack confronts Will about what's going on and refers to himself as bedrock uh, in contrast to sand. And Will shouldn't have to doubt him in the same ways that he doubts himself. How important do you think it is that Will hears this in this episode while everything else seems to be falling apart around him? I think it's important, but at the same time, I think that uh, this is hard. Like, I love Jack, but Will really shouldn't have been in the field at this point. I realized that Jack was making a judgment call, but as bedrock as Jack was, everyone is using everyone else to their end. You know, Will is he's sort of a pawn, and... um it's difficult. Like, I, I, I think that it's important for Will to hear because he needs to know that he can trust someone without doubt. But, like, I just don't know if I believe Jack that he's bedrock. It's, it is drawn into question, I think, because then there's the scene with Jack and Hannibal in which he tells Hannibal that he believes that Will is still innocent and genuine and can fight through anything that Jack puts in front of him. So there's a bit of, um, I don't know if it's as far as a contradiction, but Jack is pushing him at the same time that he's recognizing he has done this to Miriam Blass too. What what do you make of this, Kate? I think that, I think that Jack is, I think he is bedrock. And I, I really, I wrote down that line as well. I think it's so fitting. And if this were any other situation where you didn't have the devil as your uh, trusted friend and confidant, Will would be just fine because he could rely on Jack and he could rely on himself. Um, I think that with in regards to to Miriam Lass, I like that Jack is seeing those connections and I, I I like that he is unwilling to hand over responsibility completely to Will. But I also note noted very much the the shift from Coquille to now, where in Coquille you ha- very much had Jack pushing Will and Will saying that he wasn't stable. And so now three episodes la- later, we have the reverse. And and Will is so defensive in that exchange with Jack. I thought that was interesting. Um, the the more un- unmoored he is, the more he is pushing to continue that he ha- that he needs to tell himself he's okay so that he is able to, you know, so that he can feel more secure. And so then he's pushing himself further and further when Jack would rather wheel him back in and yeah he shouldn't be in the field at this point jack should have pulled him after that not reassuring at all conversation in the previous episode but um but i guess maybe it's just that i like jack so much and Lawrence fishburne is so gravitasy <laughs> but uh i do I, that was reassuring for me i don't know if that answers the question 
I think it does. And to me, it was one of the, the two big triumph well, not big, but somewhat triumphant moments in the episode, or at least that had those underpinnings. And we'll talk about the other one in just a moment. Um, but it, I do like Jack as well, so maybe that's coloring my opinion of it too. Um, and in that scene with him and Hannibal in front of the fireplace, I would also uh, mention that Hannibal, in order to manipulate Will to the extent that he is, also needs to talk around Jack effectively as well. So um, there's a lot of information that not that is not being um, given to the right people to make these kinds of decisions, I guess, most accurately. So it's it's difficult because you can understand Jack's perspective, I think, um, both ways, not wanting to lose another one of his people and also wanting to do his job to the best of his abilities and then also from Will's perspective, um, not wanting to go completely overboard. And it's interesting that Alana Bloom is not in this episode because I would have uh, been interested to to hear some of her thoughts about this and then also him wanting to to be as effective as he can as a consultant but did you want to mention Alana yeah I was uh that was what I was going to ask you guys because I think it's notable that she's not in this episode because she would take one look at Will and know that something was not right and know that this wasn't just psychological trauma I mean I think what do you think Libby I absolutely agree I think Alana would have known in a second that something was not right with Will that that Will needed to see someone, that that what was happening was not okay, and I think she would have put an end to it. Um, I think it was a very specific choice not to have Alana in this episode because it, again, shows Will as completely unmoored and, like, trying to keep his head above water, but right now all he has is Hannibal, who is manipulating him, and Jack, who is bedrock but also really needs him to do his job which is putting will in a very dangerous headspace so i think alana being gone is is very significant in this episode and and pointed well and also with um jack needing uh, needing will to do his job it's i think it's good to remember that at this point we've seen several episodes now of hannibal pushing will away from jack and even in the previous episode there was hannibal takes uh will's desire to get uh to get a brain scan he says he needs to get a brain scan then hannibal turns that around into jack is pushing you too far jack is doing this to you and creating this mental trauma so I i think there is more animosity with with between will and jack in this episode um in those in those exchanges there yes jack is there for will but I think if Hannibal hasn't been trying to, you know, reassert him, himself as the primary person that Will goes to instead of Jack, then maybe we'd see a different reaction with the two of them as well. That's true. Like Hannibal's definitely poisoning the Jack well for, for Will in a very pointed way. Well, let's get a little bit more into uh, the portrayal of the mental illness in this episode, because uh, I think it's worth talking about. Um, George's mother talks about how little is actually known about mental illness, which she claims really has to do with finding solutions, uh, or does not have to do with finding solutions, and is instead about managing expectations, is, is how she puts it. Kate, I know you were somewhat disappointed with how this series 
kind of let go of Will's condition in many ways. How do you feel mental illness is handled in this episode? Um, I think that the, what we get with with Georgia and her dis, uh, you know, her dis, uh, this is I was gonna want to say dissociation, but that sounds a very, like a very specific term that I'm probably misusing. Um, her disconnect between reality and just not being sure if she's alive. I think that is shown very well. I think what we get with Will is very powerful. The the way that the the show puts you in his perspective with what's going on is completely disorienting and makes it very relatable. His experience and his uncertainty, very relatable. Um, and as for Will's, uh, his, his spectrum disorder, whatever it is, I did, I was noticing, I forgot to mention on last week's podcast, but um, I noticed last week that the, he was back to not, engaging in eye contact as as much in, in that scene with Lance Hendrickson and I was noticing a little bit of that more of that here so as he's becoming as he's as he's getting sicker those elements to his personality are, are kind of becoming more prominent again I don't know I could just be making that up I don't know if you guys noticed that did you guys notice him avoiding eye contact more in this episode than in in the past you know after the pilot uh, I think I did, yeah. And as this season has now started to kind of throw Will further and further into this hole, those aspects are coming back a little bit. It's obviously in a much different context because this is encephalitis uh, and, and not having to do with his autism. Um, but it's it is bringing those issues up again, um, whereas I think we got several episodes in a row where it was kind of just not there at all, uh, which is somewhat of a problem, I would say. But um, but Libby, what, a, what about you in relation to this portrayal and this uh, finding solutions versus managing expectations? Uh, that was actually the only thing I wrote down from this episode, just because I found it very resonant. And um, I think that's a very interesting, if if uh, if negative um, view of how of how mental illness works and and how mental illness treatment works, but not necessarily inaccurate. Um, I think that this episode probably does the one of the finest jobs I've seen between marrying that that plot of um, the episode to Will's condition, which we see in these episodes where um, it's working as a rough parallel for whatever Will's going through. And I think that sense that um, that you're so disconnected, you're not even sure you're who you are anymore, is very is very disorienting for Will because of all the things that Will is, he's always had a very strong sense of self. Like Will knows who he is. He knows his his strengths and his weaknesses. He knows his limitations. And with the encephalitis, I think uh, they're portraying his spectrum disorder or his empathy, his imaginary empathy disease as <laughs> working in concert with um, the encephalitis in such an intriguing way in which his pre his, his, his already existing diagnosis is work to like deepen and distort and become like just monstrous reflections of what they are. And I think that that's, that's really interesting, and I think it's a very accurate portrayal of what sometimes happens with mental illness within your own head. Like, when you are in the heart of it, things distort, and it's 
so much harder to see what is real and what your brain is telling you is real. And um, this episode does just about the best job I've seen in in portraying um, how frightening it is to not be able to trust your own mind. Um, and that is at the heart of so much of mental illness that I actually think it's a very important episode of television in that sense. I would agree. And it was surprising because I didn't remember that big part of this episode the first two times that I saw it. I didn't remember uh, George's mother talking about it so bluntly. And I think the only other time in Hannibal, without spoiling anything, in which I felt like there was actually some social commentary being given, uh, was season two, episode three, which was the, the very critically well-received uh, legal episode. But this, I think, is much more interesting, much more thoughtful in terms of how it's talking about real issues, I suppose. So um, it's it was great and also kind of upsetting um, to, to apply that more fully, I think. When you think about the portrayal of, of this as well in this episode, I would also connect it with with Jack. And this, I think, is one of my my favorite episodes of the series. And and I have, like, no notes. I, I We were talking about this before we started recording. Normally I have pages and pages of detailed notes and different colors and all this stuff. I basically just have, this is creepy and this is creepy over and over <laughs> again in my notes here. But um, but I, I really connected with it. And I think that is part of it for me. I, I think it is so effective in its demonstration of of what it might feel like to be experiencing what Will's experiencing. But when you also extrapolate that out... I like that it also shows you can have a Jack in your life, someone who is there for you, who wants to support you and is trying to be helpful. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're able to help or that they are equipped to help. And so I think if you extend that, you know, this discussion of mental illness out to, to, to will support structure, obviously a lot is that in the episode and you have Hannibal, which I mean, come on. But uh, in relation to Jack, I mean, Jack says, you don't think of yourself as the killer. And uh, Jack, that's what he's been doing every week. That's how he does what he does, is that he has to think completely as the killer. And so you know, that that lack of understanding or, or Jack's perception of what he's been going through this whole time, not being necessarily what we understand his experience to be, I think was a nice note as well. Oh my God. Yes. So much that like, that is so like, and that is something that I think I subconsciously got, but not in the front of my brain. And that is so right. Like when you are in this mental illness, you have these amazing people to act as, act as touch tones. So you can kind of reach out and be like, okay, well, I know that is right. Like you said, bedrock, but what people miss is that that's not enough. Like, it's 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 a it's a fine tool to have to orient yourself but all it does is orient yourself you're still in the muck like you're still struggling in it you're still you're still disoriented it's it's not enough it's good and it helps but it's not a catch-all and yeah like when jack was like you never picture yourself as the killer like no like <laughs> that's that's a laughable <laughs> fundamental misunderstanding of of what's going on and you're absolutely right that happens a lot like 
you get in these situations and, and you think you understand what someone else is going through. You think you understand what someone else's process is and you operate under your misunderstanding because it's easier than imagining what's actually happening. And, um, until someone says you don't picture yourself as the killer, you, you never realize just how off their perception is. It's a great observation, Kate. This is a fascinating conversation. I didn't consider it about operating under misunderstanding in that way. And just thinking about all of this as the two of you have been talking, uh, I think Beverly is a really interesting piece of that puzzle as well and almost acts as the even stronger bedrock for Will because she is somebody who I, I don't think um, has the level of misunderstanding that Jack does and takes Will at face value. And even if she has trouble dealing with some of those things, She's still able to put that aside and try to, to aid him in some way. She is who he calls because he's not sure that what he saw was real. So I think that that is very telling. So I, I really enjoy how she was used in this episode. That Will and Beverly relationship has been one of my favorite things in going back and watching season one after having seen season two. And so, so getting to really just re-experience the progression of the show. And because... Uh, Obviously, the first time through watching the show, you're aware that she's around, and but she still feels very much like a supporting figure. But when you look at Will's life, he doesn't have that many people in it. He doesn't really get to have supporting figures in his life because there are so few people. that like, If he has a cell phone, there's like three people in it. And Beverly apparently is one of them. And uh, there's also Winston. It's got to be, right? Well, of course. I mean, come on. Winston's the best. But, uh, but... When I was watching, one of my few notes is I just, at the end of this episode, it's so creepy and disturbing straight through to the very end. I just want to watch, like, the the episode of Psych with those two as the lead. Buddy cop duo, solving crimes, getting into wacky hijinks. I love the chemistry of the two actors and could really use, a, like, a fun moment <laughs> with them. But it's been so much, you know, it's what we get with them here, too, and her reassuring of him, but without they've been flirty in the past, but there's not all this drama of the romantic connection with Alana in that exchange, which I think is necessary. And that's why it's Beverly and not Alana saying this stuff. But I just, it was really nice to see. Um, earlier, Libby, you mentioned the the parallels between Georgia's uh, illness and what Will is going through um, and stuff like that. Uh, her illness won't let her trust anyone or anything. Her tests, as far as she was aware, were inconclusive and that she's having difficulty accepting reality. And, and these, of course, can be applied to Will fully. Um, but how are Will's similarities with Georgia different to how Will has been compared to previous killers in this series? And, and could you talk a little bit about that moment near the end when he says to her, you are not alone. We are here together, because I think that that's a very powerful scene. I, I think, and, and forgive me because I have not been reviewing this series as you guys have through season one, and I have a terrible memory, but um, if we're just going on, like, let's, let's look at Garrett Jacob Hobbs and the similarities to Will. Like, he, he there are, Will has these, um, he sees parts of himself in, well, in everyone, that's, that's part of his gift, I guess, but... Um, so many times in these killers, he sees um, these parts of himself that he dislikes or that he fears. 
And um, in Georgia, he sees parts of himself that are new, that are um, frightening to him, that make him feel isolated. And for the first time, he's looking at a killer, I think, and thinking, oh, God, here is someone else who understands. Here is someone else who is just as alone and frightened as I am. And it doesn't have to be that way. So when Will is saying, and this is this is a really hokey thing to say, so forgive me, but when Will is saying to Georgia, you know, I'm here, you're not alone, he's saying that to himself. Like, like he is reassuring himself that this is this is really happening and and Georgia is an important key and oh hey let's let's wrap this in too Georgia is an important key because in mental illness sometimes the only people you can truly connect with are other people who are mentally ill because they are the only people who fully understand let's keep the metaphor going that sometimes you have to see yourself as the killer um that is a fundamental understanding that only someone else who is not quite right, can see. So when he finds Georgia, there is a kinship, there is an understanding, there is a sense of community and relief because as much as you can tell someone they're not alone, until they find someone else on their wavelength, they don't know. So this is one of the few times with these parallel structures that I think that will, that they really blend together and and become one thing at the end it's it's really interesting if you look at i think four characters that we get here uh, oh i guess abigail's not in this episode except for in flashback but in terms of um maybe not how active a role they have in a killing but in terms of the intent so uh, obviously hannibal talks about how he killed tobias in a much different way than we as the audience understand it so we know and I would say of Hannibal, Will, Abigail, and Georgia, Hannibal is the one who is most actively aware of what he's doing and who has the intent of actually murdering somebody. And then on the opposite of those four is Will, who only killed Garrett Jacob Hobbs um, because he needed to in that moment. And I think what we've seen with Abigail recently and what we get with Georgia here, who just doesn't even understand the life that she's living or if she is living at all, I think with those two characters, it becomes much more muddy, and that's something I think that uh, that Will gravitates to. And like you said, is another key difference into how he relates to her versus other characters like Garrett Jacob Hobbs or other murderers who um, who are actively murdering people and who he has to associate with because that's how he catches them. But but George is a different case. I agree. And I don't have anything to add. <laughs> um, though we're talking about these connections with Will and Georgia, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, because if I have one issue with the episode, or if there's one little snag that, that's bothering me a little bit, it's how completely par these two stories parallel. They're these two, uh, where, where, you know, the headspace that they're in, the backstory we get about Georgia's um, attempted treatment and how she felt betrayed and then she couldn't trust anyone because this this person that she ha thought that she could trust had betrayed her. I mean, that's exactly what's happening with Will 
right now. Well, he doesn't know it's going to, but that we can project that that is what will happen with him. Should he find out what, um, what Hannibal has done. And, um, it, it's, it's all a little tidy, but I also enjoy the parallels. So I don't know if, if that's a problem or if, if maybe because there have been so many other parallels that now having this episode take that to the next level, that's what makes it frustrating. So maybe there should have been fewer parallels earlier on. What do you guys think about that? It's just like a storytelling element. Um, I think looking at it that way, it's very easy for it to be overboard. And again, without spoiling anything, the, I think the closest parallel we get is the, the Jeremy Davies and the social worker episode, which is so thoroughly doing the same thing where what's that's going in on, season two. Yeah. Where what's going on with Will is going on elsewhere in the episode. And, and this is, is absolutely a precursor to that. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't bother me here just because this is the furthest we've gone into Will's problems, I think. So it, it's kind of good to see that externalized almost. I don't know. Libby, what do you think? Yeah, I actually, I completely understand where it's bothering you, Kate, because I hate when it happens again in this season or in this series <laughs> and the, the plot you guys were just talking about. Um, but I was so enraptured. I'd never, I'd never, it never occurred to me that things were, were too similar. Um, I, I guess I, um, I, was Georgia and forgive me, I must not have been paying attention. Was Georgia like intentionally misdiagnosed or could could they just not figure out what was wrong with her? I think they just didn't know. I don't think it, it we have no evidence yeah. that it wasn't an intentional. Right. Yeah. And I, I for me, that's just such a realistic thing. Like you just you just never know what's wrong. You just never get anything um, concrete. Like it, it, it never occurred to me that they were they were too similar. I can understand why that would be a complaint, but I got to like that, it, that never registered on me. And it, and it, which is something because it really registered for me in the, in, in, in the Jeremy Davies plot. All right. Well, uh, let's move on a little bit from here and uh, go to our recurring segments for the podcast. The first of which of course is Kate's classical corner and Kate, what can you tell us about the score in, in buffet? Wow. And there was that repeats, uh, uh, tune, song, whatever that we got piece um, in, in that scene that I was talking about when Georgia and Will are reaching out to each other. Do we have a name for that? I just call it the Will's Happy Place music because okay. <laughs> isn't that the Winston music <laughs> yeah, from I think the you, pilot? Yeah, I refer to it as the Winston music so far. So Yeah, it's the Will's Happy Place music for me, which this is a creepier use of it. Obviously, I won't say what the most creepy use of it is. Listeners, it will come back again. I don't feel like that's a spoiler. We can talk more about that in Spoiled Meat if uh, if we're concerned about that. But yeah, we, that, that bit of scoring, I definitely wrote down. Um, there is one classical piece that's used in this episode, and it's during the dinner. It's a uh, box prelude number one, BWV 846, which people will be familiar with as uh, probably most as the part of the, the the piano part to Bacchino's Ave Maria, um, da 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 that one. Um, so it's it's gorgeous, the very lovely piece, uh, very simple, um, very short. I, and when I, I when I was at Comic Con this year, I got to speak with Brian Reitzel for about half an hour about 
the scoring on, on Hannibal. And one of the things he said was that for a lot of the dinner scenes, um, because he is responsible for choosing the classical pieces most of the time as well. Um, the, the the music that Handel puts on for dinner sometimes has great significance, but sometimes it's just music that he puts on for dinner. And there have been a few examples of that in this first season where I've thought that they were lovely pieces, but couldn't really come up with a reason for it to be that specific piece. And I would say the same thing here. Uh, so so if you, if you guys out there are seeing a connection that I'm not, that's awesome. I love that stuff. And send me a tweet uh, at the Televerse on Twitter and we can talk about it. But here I think it's just, you know, a lovely Bach prelude to accompany dinner. Um, as for the rest of the scoring, it's very, very much um, mood or tension music throughout. It's, it's very effective and it, it would be easy for an episode like this to play up the suspense or play up the horror with really present and bombastic music. And that is not the case throughout this episode for a majority of the scoring. I really like the cluster tones we get about halfway through with, um, when basically, um, Hannibal is playing Sutcliffe like a fiddle and getting him to do what he wants, you know, as, as Sutcliffe agrees to withhold that information from, uh, from Will, the, the, we get a uh, more present and uh, very dissonant scoring there, which is, which I really liked. Also, there's a lot of percussion. Um, when we have Georgia watching Will oh so creepily in through the window, uh, very, very much more present there. And we, and that kind of percussion, this is a lighter form of percussion to what we got with Tobias, who was, you know, our previous serial killer with that kind of percussive music, but it's still, I thought that choice was, was interesting. And then at the end that we get this sort of plunking piano, a uh, twangy kind of piano sound, which I thought was, was interesting when we get to the very end of the episode and Hannibal is sawing off Sutcliffe's face, there's some other scoring going on at the same time, but the, the line that stands out there most is that piano. And so to have it sort of just be this, I don't know if it's honky tonk or just sort of an upright that's been sitting maybe on the porch or something has gotten weathered a bit and doesn't sound too great. But I, I thought that was a really distinct choice. And um, I really enjoyed that element to the scoring. Did you guys pick up on any, any particular, I mean, I have like, I have nothing else. It's like the shortest Kate's classical corner ever. I don't have anything else um, other than I liked it a lot. <laughs> Music is nice. <laughs> that's where I'm at with this episode. <laughs> um, the comment I think that the only one that I wrote down was the opening number when we're following our first victim through her house. Uh, it it seemed out of place, out of character for Hannibal. It was almost entirely like an X Files opening, which worked incredibly well for the episode. But um, it, and it had its own kind of musicality to it, so that kind of stood out as a little bit different from the stuff that we've gotten before. Yeah, I agree. But uh, that's all I had. So uh, we'll move on to the next of our recurring segments, the devil in the details. So any little things that stood out, such as visuals, uh, directorial flourishes, lines of dialogue, comedy, uh, anything that that stood out in your mind. The first thing that I will mention, I actually have two details that I'm impressed that I noted, and the first of which was mind-blowing uh, with that first victim when she goes to get her flashlight and pulls out um, the drawer, on her bedside table there are two books. One of them is called Mastering Wine, and the other one is a book about the FBI. So this is clearly 
Brian Fuller, just grabbing whatever books are around and putting them there on the table. <laughs> That's uh, fun. Li- yeah. Uh, Libby, any details stand out to you? You know, I this is not maybe a detail, but in that opening scene, like, I just, it just feels so evident of Brian Fuller's love affair with, like, horror movies. Like, it's such a beautiful homage, and every detail is just pitch perfect, and that is my contribution that is not really a contribution to the details segment. That is absolutely a contribution, and I'm going to piggyback on it and say in that opening sequence, uh, I love that the the that girl, the woman who is the victim there, she's so self-reliant in that moment. She she feels more intelligent. Like, if, if it was me... No, I know! I thought the same thing. I'm like, I don't even have a staple gun. Like, I don't have a tarp. Damn it. Like, I can't live in the north is what I thought. <laughs> well, she goes up to the, you know, the attic or whatever, and she sees it, and she isn't like, uh-oh, this is creepy, which is what any victim at the start of a horror movie does. They're they're scared, even though they don't have any reason to know they should be scared. Uh, or they're stupid, and she's neither. Uh, but she sort of just, like, looks at it, goes, huh, okay, well, I better take care of this. And she does. And, I mean, just, I these little tiny details of, of how that character is treated make her feel like a very independent person, and then she's killed and we never find out much more about her. But I just, the fact that the, that the show, the actor, the director, the writer, whatever cared enough to make her feel like someone who was an individual person and not just time for the nice lady at the start of the episode to get killed was, was nice. I appreciated that. There are also pictures of horses and horse figurines everywhere in her house, not just her bedroom, but in her hallway. So that's kind of establishing character without doing it more overtly. So uh, um, let's see what else. It was interesting to note that everybody just assumes at first that this is a male killer, and obviously that comes down to statistics. Um, but is, is this the second female that we've had after Molly Shannon? Yes. Okay, so uh, out of ten, uh, does that does that sound right about in terms of the statistics of that? Yeah, I... I don't know. Yes? Would, question yeah, mark? I would, I would say the same thing. Yes, question mark. Um, the other the other detail was during that um, scene with Jack and, and Hannibal at the fireplace. Uh, I, I spent a necessarily long time looking this up. The decanter that is being used, I believe, is a uh, Luigi Bormioli Rosini decanter, but it doesn't come with the the stopper that comes with that originally it looks like a ravenscroft thomas jefferson stopper and i actually have the ravenscroft thomas jefferson decanter so that's the only reason that i recognize that but ha how's that for being a whiskey enthusiast very um, nice um the only other things i have here i've got another detail but i'm going to save it for spoiled meat um and so the the last two things i have i love hannibal's like kind of blue and like was that gold tie he's wearing early on he's got that like goldenrod sort of color shirt with the blue just it was a very the every the clothes on Hannibal always look great but particularly I was like Hannibal's looking good today and then the uh the line that I keyed into was Will saying that there was a grandiosity to the violence uh that wasn't there that he was imagining his projection wasn't accurate and usually his projections are accurate he could tell that it was heightened 
And uh, I thought that was interesting. And I particularly enjoyed that use of uh, the turn of phrase. So that those are my details. And did you notice that Hannibal, instead of saying, I had to be sure, he said, had to be had sure. Had to be sure? Of course I noticed that, because you've <laughs> broken me. You've broken me, Sean. It's all your fault. Yep. All right. Let's uh, move on to the final of our recurring segments, uh, and the newest, of course, which is spoiled meat. And if you are watching Hannibal for the first time and would not like to be spoiled on any future episodes, go ahead and fast forward now. Uh, Libby, did you want to kick things off? Anything that kind of... Uh, piqued your interest in terms of things that you had seen previously on this series? Oh, golly. Nothing off the top of my head, but you guys talk and I might think of something. Okay, Kate, go for it. Yeah, I didn't have very much. I just have two, two, little, um, two little things. First of all, the when Will is talking with Jack and rather than backing down and wanting to, to back away as he had a couple episodes previous, he's trying, you know, so to say that he's fine and he can do this and all of that, that sort of reminded me of Alana in season two in her relationship with Hannibal, where the more Will viscerally knows that something is wrong, the more desperate he is to pretend like everything's okay. So I sort of connected that to Alana closing her eyes and be becoming involved with Hannibal in season two, because that was a way to force herself to pretend that everything was fine with Hannibal. Um, and then the, the real one I wanted to talk about was, um, we have our only definitively not human meat <laughs> meal in this episode, right? In the entire series. Is there another meal? I guess the, the vegetarian dish Freddie gets last week, but every other meal, it's like, you never quite know, but this, you see the pig leg. Nope. Hannibal somehow put human on that and made it look authentic. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that didn't even notice that, or I didn't, I noticed it. I didn't note it down in terms of that though. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we talked a little bit about Beverly already. And again, I continue to be surprised by a couple things going back and rewatching the first season that, um, I had questions about in the second season and they've very much been answered just by me not paying attention enough during my, my first watch through. But, uh, yeah, she's clearly got a great relationship with Will that totally warrants, um, how she tries to help him out, uh, in the beginning of the, the second season. Yeah. If I go back and watch season two, when we finish this, I'm dead. I mean, obviously the first time through Beverly's death was, was, was difficult and really, uh, sad, but it's going to be a lot worse the second time now that I've really enjoyed every single appearance from that character. There was also the detail of time that Hannibal mentions, uh, two to three months since Will has been having these problems and since Hannibal met Will. So right now we are somewhere between two to three months. Uh, I knew that we were kind of wondering the specificities of that uh, at the end of season two. So I don't do, do the, these next few episodes leading up to the finale, those go like pretty quickly in real time, right? I think they would have to just because of Will's sickness. Like it would, it seems like it would progress quickly. So therefore the episodes need to happen pretty quickly on top of each other or else he would be dead somewhere. Uh, oh, think- oh, I know one more. Devil in the detail, I guess. Well, I guess we, I'll make it turn into spoiled meat here, but we have Georgia Lass. From Dead Like Me. Yeah, I was wondering when we were going to get to that. I love Ellen Muth's casting. Uh, and she dies in the next episode. So, you know, she's, she has a very short span of time on the show. <laughs> but, but I, I, you know, I did not recognize her at 
all. When the first time I watched it, I missed her name in the opening credits and I did not recognize her until we see that picture of her. And I was like, holy crap, it's George. Yeah, and we got um, a Wonder Falls character, a Dead Like Me character, and we're going to get uh, more Pushing Daisies references later with the bees. Um, but yeah, Brian Fuller. Oh, God, the bees. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, they need to get Lee Pace on the show. Oh, God, how good would that be? Actually, I'd be okay if he's the, the investigator yeah. chasing down uh, Hannibal and, and Bedelia. That, that would be fine. Oh, they already had Ellen Green on. So there's your Pushing Daisies alum. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and she was supposed to have oh, a bigger right. role. Um, all right, anything else, Libby, that you wanted to mention? Um, Kate, I think they have fish in season two. Does that count? Yeah, that counts. Okay, cool. Also, <laughs> and I, I forgot for the devil in the details, I love the clock faces. That was just so horrifying. That's one of the like my defining Hannibal memories like is is will's clock faces and yeah this is not the right segment for that but i just had to mention it well and it's such a great and specific oh yeah indicator it's instantly it's like here's what will sees and here's what maybe somebody who's dealing with with issues like his would see and here's what the rest of the world sees right it's very efficient Mm -hmm. uh sorry i was just looking up online i didn't get it in time but there is a site where you can order a t-shirt with that clock face on it oh my god that's depressing yeah it really <laughs> is um okay well we'll wrap up spoiled meat here is there anything uh, else in relation to this episode that we haven't talked about that either of you would like to mention before we wrap up did we talk about it being creepy no <laughs> did we talk about the opening being really good uh, I'm not sure. Did we talk about the whole episode being very, very effective and how much I really like it? That's Hannibal, all I have. Man. How good is this series? I know. Like, this is the high level of criticism I have for this episode. It was good, guys. It was really good. <laughs> that's the perfect place to end, I think. So uh, we will conclude the discussion of this episode here. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 1, Episode 11. Roti. Uh, but until then, thank you once again for coming on and talking with us, Libby. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, they can find me and my work online at sometimes on AV Club, sometimes at NPR, but always at my Tumblr, which is midwestspitfire.tumblr.com. And Kate, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Well, you can hit me up on Twitter at The Televerse. I love talking TV with you guys, so drop me a line. You can also, of course, find my written work at Sound on Sight and The AV Club. You can listen to me talk TV uh, every Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, depending on how recording goes. Um, on The Televerse, Sound on Sight's TV podcast, we talk about the rest of TV. And, oh, God, by the time this goes up, it might be time for The Walking Dead to be back. So in that case, I'm probably on the Sound on Sight Walking Dead podcast as well. Um, but, yeah. Just hit me up on Twitter. You'll find everything else. Oh, and if you want to email Sean and myself, you can always email the televerse at gmail.com, and I'll forward it on to Sean and make sure that he gets any correspondence. But we've gotten a few emails over the past uh, year, and it's been great hearing from you guys. So thank you so much. You sound really excited to be on the Walking Dead podcast talking about a horror series that is just so much better than Hannibal, right? I just, I'm, I'm gonna plead the fifth because some of our listeners already don't like me because <laughs> I can be critical. So I'm just gonna. Oh, I, that's it. Got the, better. Last season. Critical is the best part. So I at least appreciate that, and I, I love listening to that podcast. 
Uh, you can find me at Twitter at my name, at Sean Coletti. Otherwise, you can find previous written reviews at soundonsite.org or at tvobermine.com. But that's it for this week. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. Ba, 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 ba.